Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. All right, on this episode, we're going to go back to talking about the situation in Ukraine. There have been quite a few developments over the past few weeks. Many have been unexpected or at least gone against conventional knowledge. And, and of course, there's tremendous relevance for what's going on over there as it pertains to electronic warfare and electromagnetic spectrum operations. So today, I am pleased to have with me Colonel Jeffrey H. Fisher. He's retired U.S. Air Force, 30-year military aviator, electronic warfare officer with seven combat tours in Iraq, Afghanistan, and the Balkans. He's flown both Air Force's EC-130 Compass Call and the A6B Prowler while on joint exchange with the Navy. Jeff also served at the U.S. Air Force headquarters in the Pentagon for both requirements as well as programming. And toward the end of his career, he was assigned as diplomatic defense official to U.S. embassies in Austria and Kosovo. Uh, His final assignment was a senior position at NATO's Special Operations Headquarter in Belgium. Uh, Today, he is an author and consultant. He's written several books, and uh, we are going to talk about those a little bit later in the show. But more so than many people, he has really had his ear to the ground as in terms of what's going on over in the situation in Ukraine. And I am pleased to have him here with me today. Colonel Fisher, it's great to have you on From the Crow's Nest. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Ken. It's uh, great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You have had your ear to the ground of what's going on more so than many people. And last month, we had John Knowles, who is the editor-in-chief of our JED magazine, And we had him on about five days into the conflict. So there was not a lot of real new knowledge about how things developed. Um, So we were still kind of guessing based on conventional knowledge how we thought things would happen. Uh, We're now about six weeks or so into into the conflict. And like I said at the opening, there's quite a few developments that have been unexpected. So just to start off, I wanted to get your insight on what we've learned so far from a contextual standpoint about how this conflict has has progressed over the last several weeks and and how does it align or conflict with what we've thought about going into the conflict? Sure. Ken, you know, I think that's a it's a good question. And sometimes proximity matters. And and I currently live in Austria with my wife, which is is a stone's throw, at least from a US perspective to Ukraine. So sometimes I have a, a little bit of a different perspective. When we talk about, you know, what what's the conventional wisdom of how did things change or, or how did what did we get wrong? I think I think that depends a lot where everyone sits. Chairman Milley was just uh, in front of Congress recently and and he had estimated that the war was going to be far shorter than it's been. And I would also argue that uh, his counterpart in Russia probably is uh, who guessed that the war would only last two days is, is having long discussions with President Putin right now on why it's taken well over a month to secure their their objectives. Scoping this down to the podcast on electronic warfare, I think that those of us that are EW experts, we owe a little bit of humility as well. For years, we've been talking about when when the East finally uh, you know conflicts with the West, there's going to be this 
mud slog fight in the electromagnetic spectrum. And, and for the most part, that hasn't happened. So we're six weeks into that. And I think a lot of people are now reevaluating, um, me included. You know, Russia had built many new state-of-the-art EW systems, and, uh, and we're just not seeing them. So there's going to be a lot of uh, retrospect on that. What's interesting is, you know, obviously, we, we, we talk about Russia as being the peer competitor to the East, and we've talked about what they're capable of from a technology standpoint. And, and certainly, we know that they possess some tremendously advanced systems in, in electronic warfare, but there seems to be a disconnect happening from the technology that they possess and how they are using it tactically and the tactical relevance of that equipment in, in, in Ukraine. Could you talk a little bit about how, you know, maybe we had, we focused too much on the technology side and not enough on the tactics or the training or even their military strategy, because we thought that obviously they'd want their, their goal would be to go into Kiev, but they haven't been able to do that yet. And, and some of that has to do with the environment they're operating in, Where's that disconnect happening? That's, I, I think we can talk for, for the whole whole podcast through that question. Um, <laughs> well, you, you've got you've got two minutes, so I mean, <laughs> perfect. No. I'll sum it up. You know, it's it's interesting, right? It's been a while since I've been in, but I, I don't think much has changed in the way intelligence briefings work. You know, correct? There's an information uh, or an intelligence officer who'll get up and say, "Hey, here's the new Soviet system, Umpdefrats." That's either a radar system, a surface air missile system, or an electronic warfare system. And they, you know, they go through basically the technical specs. Hey, this thing's upgraded from analog to digital. It's digitally capable. It's got all new processor systems, you know, amplifiers are cleaner and more powerful. We assess it to be able to do this. And and so we, you know, we go from that. We make probably as operators a, a false assumption that just because the capability exists, that they can implement it and we go with the way we implement it because it's what we know. And we just presume that the Russians can implement their imp- implement their systems the same way we do. You know, I was joking with a friend. I said, you know, if you if you have that fastest car at the Indianapolis 500, but your driver's an Amish farmer, you're probably going to have some challenges winning that race. And I think maybe we forgot, we, we focused a little bit too much on the 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 machineware or the you know the the hardware and not so much on the humanware and that's a topic of an, an article that I'm going to have out in defense po- uh, post here in, in a couple of days so yeah I I think we failed right there and not just the intelligence community I I can't you know because I, I got a lot of friends in the intel community so I got to be careful right it, I don't think intel necessarily got it wrong I I can't remember the last time when I worked at the Pentagon that I asked a question of like okay well how well do the Russians implement this. You know, when we talk about combined arms and effects in a full battle space, how well did they train to that level? I I never asked that question, and perhaps maybe I should have. Part of it goes down to how they train. I, I think it's universally accepted, at least I hope it is, that, you know, U.S. armed forces are the best trained in the world. And every country kind of goes about their training a little bit differently. Could you talk a little bit about how Russia trains and maybe how that's impacted the effectiveness that they have in in the field today. Yeah. Well, sadly, even as a diplomat, I was never invited to go train with the Russian military, which uh, which you know doesn't, doesn't shock me. But I gained some uh, amazing insights from a, a, a recent article that that I would strongly encourage a lot of people to go read. It, it was in a in a, a European publication called Le Economia. It's a, it's in English. Don't worry, it's not it's not in Italian. But it's a it's a one on one interview with a former uh, national security advisor to both uh, Putin and to and still a uh, advisor to Lavrov, although which is the foreign minister of Russia. 
And in it, one of the statements he makes is very interesting regarding training. And it's not so interesting because it's Russian training, but it's interesting because it's U.S. training. And and one of the reasons that Russia invaded Ukraine was they were uh, frustrated with the advancements and the quality training that the Ukrainians were getting over the Russian forces. And they kept seeing this and they said, if they wait much longer, the, the Ukrainians, they won't be able to beat them. That's a feather in the cap, I think, of the Department of Defense. I think it's a feather in the cap of the National Guard Bureau because for the last 30 years, uh, Ukraine has been the beneficiary of the state partnership program with uh, with California, who's gone in and, and basically helped Ukraine shed some of those former Soviet Union, Russian military doctrine, centralized command, centralized control constructs, and move them to, you know, decentralized execution where, you know, you give an order to a lieutenant or a, an NCO and you expect them to be able to achieve that order through ingenuity, uh, self-awareness. You don't necessarily need to talk to him the whole time. And that that's that's the big problem. You know, when we talk about Russian training, I was a diplomat in, in Vienna for three years from 2011 to 2014. And, and I was lucky enough to meet a lot of other former Warsaw Pact military officers who, who had trained, right, with under Soviet doctrine and are now NATO members. And they would tell me that their training was, you know, it would, may get out of the sandbox, but there was really no opposition force that they trained against. You know, they would charge into woods against nothing. <laughs> it would be an open field and they'd act like they were charging against something and they would mimic that they were being jammed or, hey, this signal's turned off. And they, but they'd already be pre-planned to go to their chatter mark frequency or whatever. And I don't think there was really any radar jamming. So, you know, I, th- I think that that, that is showing its uh, rearing its ugly head, right? I mean, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from this Ukrainian war. I, I think uh, inefficient training is one of them. I, I think Russia's Russia's had a significant problem with the you know the time told you know strategist plan for a battle, logisticians plan for a war. You know that was it was like a week and a half that the eighty mile long or however mile long the the convoy stood there just waiting for orders and waiting for gas and. It was not the most shining hour for the Russian military, I think. And it goes to, you know, when we talk EW and MSO, you know, oftentimes we talk about having to train in realistic environments. You know, what are you actually going to end up having to face when you go into into combat? And, and then, of course, when we talk spectrum environments, you know, obviously we go from the, the congested to the contested to the complex, and we try to train in those. And it sounds like in, in many ways... The technology, the Russian technology might say, okay, it can operate in certain environments, but the the training isn't, the, the forces might not have the training for the, at least the complex EMS environment that they might find in, in more populated areas such as city centers like Kiev. Exactly. And we had talked a little bit before this and, and we had talked about this kind of very question and kind of in a in a construct of, you know, dot mil PF. And one of the I think one of the biggest things that I'm chewing on right now uh, from that construct is, you know, when we let's go back a little bit and we talk about the you know Russian doctrine where centralized command, centralized execution, their forces forward are not going to do anything until, uh, you know, their commanding officer, the general, whoever tells them to go. They move when he tells them and they stop, you know, they, they stop when the general tells them. And what you learn from that kind of doctrine is, is it's very, com- it's very communications intensive. If the communications don't happen, <laughs> the military doesn't move. And, and, you know, we often joke that I think that, uh, that the typical Russian soldier would be more, he would let the enemy come upon him and climb into a foxhole with him before he'd shoot if he never got the order. 
because he fears his he fears his general more than he fears the enemy, right? I mean that that's, that's, that's kind of that kind of how they operate. So if you look at operations, what made Russia think that electronic warfare was a tool to be used to support that doctrine? That that's what I'm kind of chewing on right now. If you know that your doctrine is communications intensive, that you have to communicate up and down the chain constantly in a multi-domain battle space, <laughs> why on earth would you want to bring the battle into the electromagnetic spectrum? I, 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 would, I, I could see why you'd want to secure it, why you'd want to do electromagnetic protect and, and secure communications, but I don't know why you'd want to bring a mudslog there. To me right now, it's clear it doesn't make much sense um, you know, you got reports of Russian soldiers using their cell phones in the battle space now. <laughs> and I, I laugh at that because the advantage clearly goes to Ukraine. Uh, if Russia doesn't want to fight in the electromagnetic spectrum right now, they're 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 seeding a domain. And that this is a this could be an advantage for Ukraine. I, I don't know what they're doing. Again, I'm not I don't hold a clearance anymore. I, I don't which which allows me to be able to talk to you, by the way. So um, so there's goods and bads there. But uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating. I, I, I don't understand it. Perhaps the only reason Russia truly got into the EW game is they saw the massive success that the United States had in Desert Storm 1, in, in Iraq, in, in other places. And they said, hey, well, if, if it works for the U.S., maybe it'll work for us. Perhaps, but then maybe you should have thought about your doctrine change as well. Hello, everyone. I want to take a few minutes to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for their support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. To help me with that, I am pleased to be here with Sean Sanzelay, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs in Merrimack, New Hampshire. Sean, it's great to be here with you. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, Ken. So to begin, BAE Systems is well known to our audience as a leader in EW, but Fast Labs might be a bit new. Uh, can you tell us how your part of the organization Fast Labs fits into BAE Systems? Yeah, sure. But before I get into that, yeah, BAE Systems, like you said, has been a long, longtime leader in EW. In fact, we have a, more than 60 years of experience and our electronic warfare systems have flown on over 120 platforms and operate on 80% of the U.S. military's fixed-wing aircraft, over 95% of the U.S. Army's rotary-wing aircraft, and many platforms fielded by our U.S. allies. BA Systems Fast Labs, which is the research and development arm of the company, is all about pushing the boundaries of what's possible. We're dedicated to innovating disruptive next generation solutions for critical defense and intelligence challenges with a particular focus on advanced AI, electronic warfare, and cyber technologies. More specifically, the part of Fast Labs that I work for focuses on advanced electronics that will enable next generation solutions. In our work with leading DOD customers like DARPA and AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We often talk on this show about pushing boundaries in terms of keeping up with technology advancements. What technologies have been created out of Fast Labs and what problems are you solving on a daily basis for the warfighter? Sure. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, our Fast Labs EW R&D team is on a, a mission to ensure that our defense customers have top-notch electronic protection really kind of focusing on making sure that they have superior situational awareness on the battlefield. For example, we've developed technologies that offer the longest sensor range in the industry, lightning fast threat detection, anti-jamming measures, and, and lots more. These are essential because today's adversaries are using increasingly agile and unfamiliar signals to counter EW systems and target platforms more effectively. 
Our critical EW technologies empower our warfighter systems to swiftly detect, identify, and jam both known and unknown threats. We achieve this using adaptive signal processing, machine learning, and intelligent algorithms. Additionally, we've advanced distributed EW systems, which boost battle space awareness and coordinate across multiple EW sensors, platforms, and attack capabilities. These systems handle sensor tasking, data links, sensor fusion, and coordinated jamming, making them really invaluable for the warfighter and, and for our customers and for the DoD as a whole. That's a tremendous portfolio to keep track of. What can you tell us about what Fast Labs is working on now? Sure, yeah. Yeah, as you might expect, uh, there's, we're working a lot of cool things and we've got a lot of things on the horizon and I also can't talk about most of them here. But if you just take a look at a couple of like the recent awards that we've announced publicly, you'll see some of the interesting things and impactful projects that we're working on. For example, in December, the U.S. Department of Commerce announced approximately $35 million in initial funding for BA systems to modernize our microelectronics center in Nashua, New Hampshire. This is the first funding announcement as part of the Chips and Science Act, which is designed to strengthen American manufacturing, supply chains, and national security. The funding, along with internal investments, will help purchase new, more efficient manufacturing tools to mitigate supply chain risk, increase production capacity, and reduce our time to build products. Increased efficiency will enable a scale-up in production to meet the increasing demand for the DoD. And just before that, in November, we announced a $5 million award from the Office of Naval Research for the COALESCE program. COALESCE, in case you're not familiar, long acronym, but it stands for Common Architecture Amplifier for Low-Cost Efficient Swap-Constrained Environments. In this effort, we are advancing our gallium nitride integrated circuit solutions as well as our low-swap module electronics. The program's objective is to develop the world's highest efficiency high-power amplifier module in its frequency band. The RF modules will then transition to small form factor U.S. Navy payloads, enabling longer range and greater effectiveness in active electronic warfare applications. So then what is next for Fast Labs and BE Systems Technology Development? And if our listeners are interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, without getting into too many specifics, like I said, not only so much I can say here, but it's safe to say that we're going to continue to work with our partners and teammates in industry within academic research and, of course, with our customers to uh, assure that we are continuing to innovate for the benefit of the warfighter. If you're interested in finding out more, I encourage your listeners to take a look at basystems.com, a wealth of information on what BA Systems as a whole is kind of working on. Well, thank you, Sean, for taking time to join me. This has been fascinating to learn a little bit more about Fast Labs, and I truly do appreciate it. And now it's time to get back to our show. I know we've heard a lot of you know presentations in the past about how Russia has organized its forces well for the EW fight, but and 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 on paper they they may have, but the the, the centralized command, centralized execution. You know, they, and and they don't have a an NCO structure, or you know, that's basically as as I understand, it's officers and conscripts, basically, and and so when we talk, you know, dot mil pf, and we've had a lot of conversations here in the U.S. about how you know spectrum as a domain, and one of the reasons why we talk about it being a domain is because you need to address it across dot mil pf, as we were talking about earlier. You know, you have the doctrine piece, how you're going to fight. You have to have organization. We thought maybe that they were organized probably, but it seems to be that they do have holes in how they're organized. But then the leadership and the training and all those other pieces, we're starting, it seems like we're getting a little bit clearer picture on maybe some of their limitations. 
one of the developments that happened a couple weeks ago is, and, and I've only saw, seen it in the news a little bit, there hasn't been much follow-up as, as I've heard, is, is that apparently the Ukrainian forces did capture or retrieve some important EW system uh, from Russia. Uh, what do you know about that, the, the system that they captured or at least attained, and what that could mean for under, even better understanding some of the Russian EW technology? You know, there's uh, <laughs> I don't know what how social media is working in the United States, but I'll tell you, social media in Europe is uh, is packed with uh, with videos of Ukrainian farmers <laughs> towing away tanks, armored personnel carriers, electronic attack, uh, ground based systems, and I I think the first first order effect of that is the Ukrainian. Uh, there's going to be a lot of Ukrainian farmers who are going to have a bumper crop this year <laughs> when they when they sell their wares out of their own barn. I don't know. Again, I'm not in the military right now, so I don't know where that's going to go. I, I know there's probably a lot of people that love to take a look at it. And I think time will tell. I think we should probably stand by on that one and, and see how that develops. But yeah, this this was one of the systems that had been briefed numerous times by our intelligence folks. Um, you can find stuff most likely in, in JED on it. You can find stuff in Jane's on it. Those are obviously unclassified sources. And even the unclassified sources say it's it, it's got some significant capability. So it'll be interesting. And now that there was some news coming out today or in the last couple of days about new negotiations or ongoing negotiations about contributing more arms transfers, either from the U.S. or partner countries to Ukraine. There was an approval of a number of different uh, technologies recently by U.S. Congress, including switchblade drones. What are some of the, uh, from a technology standpoint, what are some of the, the, the things that U.S. can or should be thinking about doing in supporting Ukraine from a weapons perspective and, and also even just, you know, the forces that we have there now, and they're talking about repositioning the Patriot system on the east. So, like, what are some of the things that we can do from an EW perspective to keep pushing that ball forward on, on, on that front? Well, yeah. So I, I, I think an EW perspective is, is somewhat challenging. I live in a country that's right next door to Slovakia. As a matter of fact, the Slovakian border is 10 miles from, from my house. So uh, in Slovakia just gave an S 300 system to Ukraine, right? So this is one of the, it's not an S 400, but it's a, a fairly, fairly capable uh, surface to air missile system long range that uh, that the Ukrainians can employ. And the, the reason that's important is the Ukrainians know how to use this weapon system, right? They're, they're trained in, in that type of weapon system. I think when we talk about electronic warfare systems, we're, we have a little bit of a challenge. And that is, it's the same as the F-16 challenge, right? An F-16 is extremely capable asset, but you know, how long is it going to take us to train a Ukrainian pilot to be able to 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 maximize his use in a in an F sixteen, yes, I, I've I've read reports that they can do it in three weeks. I, I would I would tell you there's probably a lot of F sixteen pilots out there that say, if you told me that you were going to give me three weeks of training and then let me go fly against an SA twenty, I would tell you that that would not be uh, that would not be my dream employment construct of of the weapon system. So, I, I guess the question is how are there electronic warfare systems uh, that are available right now? that could be quickly trained, quickly uh, placed in, could quickly go through the FMS process, right? Because, you know, at the end of the day, um, State Department gets a vote. And I think a lot of times we're developing electronic attack capabilities that go against a near peer, as we've talked about, a denied, degraded EMS 
we, we don't spend a lot of time just creating, you know, simple jammers that the State Department's going to sign off and say, okay, yeah, we, we're okay with it, exporting this technology. So you, you run into a lot of problems there. Not that I, I don't want Ukraine to win and not that I, I don't want to help Ukraine. I just think, I think that's a, it's a great question. It's just, it's probably one for industry, right? Where's uh, British Aerospace Engineering and where's uh, L3Com and, and all the all the guys who build the jammers? Where's Cobham? Uh, you know, what, what can they push? I, I would venture to say inside the Beltway, there's probably a lot of those discussions. I'm just not privy to them. I think one of the the positives that you, you see developing through this is um, obviously this kind of the host of nations, the solidarity of nations coming together, um, where you do have you know Slovakia contributing and other EU countries and NATO countries, and they're coming together kind of as a united group, a collection of countries that are using all their re- the resources that they can with the U.S., but we're not necessarily on the front where it can be perceived as U.S. against Russia. That united front, I think, is a positive, and I think that could actually improve how we fight together in, in, in joint domain operations as, as a host of countries moving forward. So what do you think are some of the outcomes of this collaboration across partner countries? What benefit could this have in terms of future opportunities to, for better interoperability, compatibility of systems and training and fighting that could come out of this conflict. I will put back on my my uh, my amateur diplomatic hat for that. Again, I was a I was a diplomat in two different embassies in Europe as a military attaché and a senior military advisor to the chairman and to my ambassadors. I will tell you the the landscape of European security right now is like shifting sands. I mean, think things are going uh, things are going crazy. There are uh, MODs across Europe right now that even before the battle is done, they're already taking lessons learned in just the first 10 days and starting uh, in on their their plans, their requirements, their funding. You know, a billion euros from Germany is going to, or, you know, 100 billion euros from Germany is going to be dropped immediately. Uh, there's a lot of countries out there that that never thought that this was going to happen and that Putin would go as... Unhinged is probably the nicest word I can put right there. Uh, you know, you've got many people who are speculating on the 14th of this week, which that Finland and Spain, uh, Finland and Sweden are going to join NATO. And th- these aren't, you know, just these are pretty significant individuals who are talking about these types of things. I think Finland, you know, I heard an interesting comment. You know, Finland and Sweden learned, learned two valuable lessons from this. The first uh, rule that, or first thing that Finland learned was. They can't manage the relationship with with Vladimir Putin like they thought they could manage the relationship. There's there is no relationship at, at this point. So that was the key reason they stayed out of NATO. And then I think the lesson that Sweden learned was that Sweden had always been promised as a partner for peace nation in NATO, not a member, but a, a PFP ma- uh, nation that NATO would be there for Sweden uh, should anything happen. Ukraine was also a PFP nation, and I think Sweden has seen what being there for a nation means <laughs> to a to a PFP nation, and they they expected a little bit more, and they realized that they probably are going to have to ante up if that's the the level of support that that their their people want. I I would imagine it would go to a referendums in in in, in both nations, and it'll be interesting to see how they vote. So we're about six weeks in, you know. Based on what we know now, what are a couple of things that you're looking for or watching closely over the next, say, month? We'll continue to revisit this situation in episodes in the future. What are a couple of things that we need to be looking at or focusing our attention on over the next few weeks? 
when I look ahead, I have to kind of use, you know, foundational data of where we are right now. And one of the things that another one of those lessons learned that I think Mr. Putin and, and his uh, minister of defense Shoigu have learned was multi-front wars are really a bad idea. You know, when they, when they tried to attack through, you know, Belarus and then the North and then down in, um, they tried to Donbass to come in from the side out in, out in the East. And then they were going to come in from the water uh, that this, you know, it looks good on paper surrounding Ukraine, but you basically you give the the center of gravity of Ukraine where they can actually move forces far faster than you can around the outside of the circle. So I think they've 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 come back to that. Okay, maybe a single front war is, is a good idea. They're trying to regroup down in the Donbass and they're trying to push in from the from the east and and move westerly. I don't know. What I'm hopeful for is that this is a place where you can Ukraine can still make a stand. Russia's lost a lot of forces in the north probably a lot more than we even know uh, that because they don't they're probably not declaring that many. So how well will Ukraine stand against that that push from the Donbass and the Mariupol in that whole region? Uh, that's my first one. And then the second one is from an international perspective, how much greater will NATO unify and send heavy weapons? into Ukraine. You know, the MiG-29s that they keep asking for, they can fly those. They, they've got guys who know how to, how to fly those. The F-16s, I think, are a, a little bit of a challenge. The larger switchblades, I understand, I'm not, I'm not a switchblade expert, as, but as I understand, there's two different sizes of switchblades. They've been getting the little ones. They, they want the ones with a little bit of a bigger punch, but, you know, the, the javelin seems to be, you know, if you're a Raytheon guy right now, that you're pretty happy with the, I think your stock's going to go pretty well, but, uh, you know, the Raytheon and the Stinger, or I'm sorry, the, the, the Javelin and the Stinger are just, they're, 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 doing, they're doing God's work right now. So it's awesome. So obviously, you know, the, the, there's a toll of this uh, conflict on, on the ground. Regarding the war, you know, given your location in Europe, do you have any insights into what listeners can do to, if, if they're looking to help Ukrainians on the ground, do you have any insights what they can do moving forward? I appreciate that question because I, I think, there's a guy that I'm in contact with. He he he's a CEO of a company in Poland. The name of the company is called Plus Ops. The word plus and then ops. Uh, you can find it plusops.com. His name's Ron Farkas. Uh, he's a 14 year Air Force veteran. I uh, married a local Polish gal. He's in the same same boat as I am, right? I, I married a local Austrian gal. So, you know, when the woman says you were living in our country, you, you live there. But he started the company for, uh, uh, seven years ago. And he's boots on the ground. He's been to Lviv. He is intimately familiar with with, uh, charity organizations. I'm in contact with him literally every day via WhatsApp. I'm starting to donate significant funds through him. I would recommend any company that's interested, they reach out to him. I know um, his big challenge right now is logistic support. He's got a U.S. company right now that's got 44 pallets of water purification systems uh, to get from the United States into into Poland, then and into Ukraine. But he just he he needs airplanes <laughs> to uh, to move them. I don't think ships are going to work right now. One last question. Obviously, you know you, you're recently retired from the Air Force, but you are now, uh, in addition to doing some consulting work, you're also an author. You recently released a book. Could you tell us a little bit about it and uh, the title? Sure. Yeah. So I, I was going crazy with COVID sitting inside. And if I did, if I didn't do something productive, I was going to pull my hair out and I don't have a lot left. And uh, so I wrote, I, I decided to write a fiction book. I'd, I'd had the idea in my head for a while. It's about a, a former Navy SEAL uses Montgomery GI Bill to, 
to go to medical school and he, he becomes a doctor wants to wants to do good things in the world and somehow he's kind of like uh, he's the protagonist uh Jack Ryan that keeps getting sucked into bad situations like Tom Clancy and in this one he uh he ends up getting sucked into an mercenary working with a mercenary group that he's unaware of until it's too late uh, and then he escapes and he's got to try and stop an assassination plot of a of a world leader the book sales are I I'm grateful they're ex- exceptional on uh on Amazon my wife and I have broken even. I've written two more books. They, they're based on the same character. His name's Dr. Kurt Nover. The second book, it leverages my knowledge and my love of electronic warfare. So you're going to hear about uh, Compass Call in there. You're going to hear about uh, laser weapon systems. And, uh, and that, that book comes out probably this summer or fall. And the name of that's called Balkan Reprisal. And then the third book, and that'll come out probably early next year. It's already written. Uh, it's at DOD for review right now. Uh, and that one's called Afghan Ghosts, uh, and it's about uh, it's uh, again fiction thrillers, but all based on my career. What I would say to the listeners out there is, uh, I have a little bit of breaking news for you. Uh, my wife and I are again are pleased with the sales. We've we've broken even with our first book, and you know we we are uh, seeing the the refugees from Ukraine flowing through, and it uh, it breaks our heart every day in, in this land. So we have decided that. Uh, all, at least for the next month and perhaps even longer, every 100% of all my royalties from the sale of Live Range are going to go to uh, Alf- Ukrainian relief efforts. I'll leverage plus ops with with Ron Farkas. Uh, what's great about Ron, by the way, that I, I failed to mention earlier is since he's there, not only can he tell us which ones are the you know, the legitimate ones, because nobody wants to see their money go to some kind of scam artist in this kind of situation. That's just really heartbreaking. But he also knows which ones truly need the money most. You know, their charity organizations' budgets fluctuate extremely fast. You know, they're they're fat one day and then, you know, hit, get hit with 50 refugees and they're screaming for money again. So so a, on a fairly real-time basis, Ron and his team out there, boots on the ground, can, can really advocate and direct for that. And like I said, if there's big donations coming from from some of our our larger crows and, and AOC organization, which which we love, right? Because without them, we wouldn't we wouldn't be here. I, I know that if they want to get involved, you know, Ron's kind of the guy. But yeah, all of our money's going there. So if you if you buy the book, if you buy them for gifts, whatever my royalty is is going to Ukraine. That's great and very generous. And it's a, it's always difficult to know how best you can contribute to the cause, especially given all the challenges of knowing which organizations are on the up and up. And, and this is a good way of, of kind of ha- being assured that your your contributions and your support are going to the right people. So thank you. For, thank you for that. Thank you, Jeff, for uh, joining me on From the Crow's Nest. I appreciate you uh, taking time out and uh, look forward to having you back again to uh, have a follow-up discussion on this topic, uh, hopefully in the near future. Sounds good. I hope I get some of my predictions right this time because I think I think there's a lot of us that are, are happy we didn't bet in Vegas before the beginning of this war because we'd have lost a lot of money. Exactly. And I have a feeling that, you know, five, six weeks from now, we're going, we're going to be looking back and I'll probably lead off with the question. Conventional wisdom <laughs> has, has basically served, has, has proven worthless. So, uh, but uh, thank, thank you for, for, for joining me here from the Crow's Nest. Absolutely, Ken. You have a great day. Take care. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I'd like to thank my guest, retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Jeffrey Fisher for joining me. I also like to mention that we are currently conducting a listener survey that you can find wherever you download your podcast or on AOC's website at crows.org. 
On our website, you can also find more information on our sister podcast, The History of Crows, where we chronicle the history of electromagnetic spectrum operations from the earliest inventors to the latest operations. Thank you for listening. Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research and development. We're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check us out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.